Hello, and welcome to Cafefe Break on Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carrie Smith, and I'm joined, as always, by Carter Laren. Hello, Carter. Howdy. Good morning. Today Good morning. is Friday, June 21st. <laughs> I'm being super professional because we have an exciting guest here. So I'm, I'm going to... He is exciting, it. and I, I should reveal this. It didn't occur to me as I read through the book, and of course he has a nice Texan accent. Yes. Also, he has a He's great voice. He's got a voice. great Texan accent. Yeah. Um, awesome. So we'll just really quickly hit like, subscribe, all the things. We have book club coming up next week. We're doing um, Crime and Punishment. If you haven't started it yet, I suggest you get on it because uh, it's not a, a quick read. And um, without further ado, our guest this week is actually the author of a book that we read in book club in November. Um, he's the author of Texit, which was one of our most popular book clubs and people really enjoyed this. This is a month that we did nonfiction and he's currently running for Lieutenant Governor of Texas. It is our honor to welcome Daniel Miller. Howdy. And thanks for the comments about my accent. That makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> it made me happy. Just, I was like, Oh yeah. Like a real Texan. Uh, yeah, sixth, sixth generation. There you so, go. And he's also, as we discovered before we st went live, a fan of the show British Bake, the Great British Bake Off. I wouldn't say I was a fan, <laughs> uh, a casual, a casual observer. Let's, okay, let's go with that. Uh, you know, I thought all here's... Texans were fans of British Bake Shows. Well, you know, here, here's what's funny about it. I, I get, I get really fixated on things that I am just absolutely incompetent about, and and I get totally amazed, uh, you know, when I see those things. So that's not the only one. There are plenty of areas where I am just not competent, and I'm amazed at the talent of other people. I understand that's, that. Uh, that's uh, yeah, that's an admirable quality, I think, because there's a lot of people who look at the talent of other people and go, "I could do that." And I think it takes uh, it takes some knowledge of yourself to look at other people and go, I could never, ever do that. <laughs> right. So. Uh, well, and that's that's one of them. You know, I also like to watch Gordon uh, watch Gordon Ramsay scream at uh, restaurant people. So that's pretty fun, too. <laughs> yeah. Although I could scream at restaurant people. I, I don't think I would have any reason to because I couldn't cook. But I could, I could you'd, you'd be competent at the screaming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so but, Daniel, we, <laughs> I, I just wait. I just want to share a story because obviously I don't know if you can tell from my accent, but I, I'm not sixth generation Texas. What? Um, yeah, and I know you you can leave now. It's fine if you're offended. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, I grew up in New York. I never had anything to do with Texas. And uh, I, years ago. So I love the idea of of secession by states. Like I think it's awesome, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But years ago, I remember watching a documentary, another British film actually, about gun laws. And the British, uh, the British host went around America, and he was interviewing people. And it was based on some case that happened in the UK where some guy had killed an intruder who had like was threatening. He like broken into his house and he killed him with his shotgun. And they interviewed this guy from Texas. And I it just this moment just really solidified everything that Texas, like the Texas attitude for me, because they're interviewing the guy. And instead of just saying, like, yes, we wouldn't prosecute him in Texas, because that blah, blah blah. He started his his comment with, Well, if he had been in America or Texas, <laughs> and it was like two separate countries for him. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I love about Texas, because there is that attitude of just we're Texas first and 
we happen to be a member of some other thing. Yes. So I, anyway. I don't, I don't disagree. I mean, look, it's, it's that attitude, you know, they're, um, you know, it's like Steinbeck said in travels with Charlie, you know, when he said that uh, Texas is a state of mind, you know, he said a, a Texan outside of Texas is a foreigner. You know, he goes into this, this big, long dissertation uh, about how, how there is this almost external and internal recognition of, of the individual character and nationhood of Texas. So uh, tr trust and believe. I love stories like that. <laughs> There's a part yeah. in your book, actually, Daniel, where you talk about how, um, uh, what's what's the right word to use for it? How interesting it was for you, baby, to see people come to rallies for Texas or for Texas independence and to be sporting all of the American flags and the American T-shirts. And you sort of talked about um, how odd that is from your perspective. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that opened my eyes a bit. Yeah, it's odd, but you know, it's, uh, and you know, really, I guess to, to tell the story, uh, a little bit for those that haven't had a chance to read the book, you know, it, it's a point of observation, you know, over the, the years of political advocacy and advocating for Texas independence, uh, it has been sort of this underlying theme and maybe a bit of an in, inside joke a bit that, you know, you, you can't cherry pick who is going to be a Texas supporter based off of appearance or anything else. And one of the things that we noticed uh, over the years was that those people seem to be, you know, the ones that were sporting the most, uh, you know, they've got they've got the the full screen print shirt with the eagle on it and the American flag. And, and they're the first people to come up and say, hey, I'm in, you know, and and really, I think it's it's part. I think it's really two things, right? That that really drive it. Um, number one is the fact that people in Texas view Texas as more American than America, uh, and, and I, I believe that's it. But I also believe that there is this idea uh, among those people that the America that they support, that they're rah rahing about, is not the America that we live in. And and I know that I talk about it in the book about this this distinction between you know what is the united states of america and since i've written the book i, I went back and revisited uh, a speech that margaret thatcher gave uh which is it, they refer to it as the bruges speech it, it really is kind of the speech that you can look at as the foundation of what ultimately led to brexit and and in the speech she was talking about it was primarily about whether or not Britain was going to join the euro and, you know, its relationship with the common market, which was very different than the European Union that we see now. But Thatcher was talking about some of the criticism that they had gotten for wanting the UK to stand as a self-governing independent nation. And she says, you know, just because we want to be independent, and this is a paraphrase, just because we want to be independent doesn't mean that we are anti-Europe or we're not European. She said, we will always be European by virtue of our shared and common history and by geography. But that doesn't mean that we should uh, essentially give away our governance to people that are not us. You know, we could be friends, we could be neighbors, we will work together, we will love one another, we will revel in our shared history. But, you know, we that doesn't mean that we're going to give up who we are in the United Kingdom to be European. And I think that's where we stand with, with America right now. People, when they talk about America, they have very different perspectives on, on what that means. 
uh, America? Is it the principles under which the, the union was initially founded? Or is it this political and economic construct called the United States of America uh, that is embodied by everything evil and unholy in the federal system? Uh, that is that is really the, uh, the distinction that people need to make, because if you conflate the two, then you give those central planners in, you know, Mordor on the Potomac, you give them all the ability to hold that sort of nostalgia and romanticism over you to get to force you to do what they want you to do. It's something that I think the establishment has been intentionally conflating because you can capitalize on the love for the principles and the ideals and the found, things founding fathers have said and and some of the history uh, and capture that energy and and get it to uh, be used for your own advancing of whatever your agenda is, expansion of power in one way or another. Well, I mean, think about it. You know, we're, we're in a situation where those that ha have their hands on the machinery of power uh, in the federal system are quick to accuse people uh, that have that have legitimate criticisms of that system of being unpatriotic. And, you know, being patriotic or, you know, or they call it, they call people un-American. I mean, I, I've been called un-American so many times, I probably need to set a swear jar on the desk and I wouldn't have to raise any campaign money, right? Uh, but, you know, that, but that's, that's what they do. They utilize that, that romanticism. And I think that where, where Texas is coming into its own and, and really this much larger conversation about national divorce uh, is people are beginning to recognize that if they hold a, a set of principles dear, right, that we should live in a constitutional republic, there should be a rule of law, uh, we should value the rights and liberties of the individual, uh, you know, if, if you believe that, then it's an almost impossible to achieve or, or, or um, how should I say, it's, it's almost impossible to preserve those principles under the existing federal system, which is intentionally at this point designed to remove all of those things from us. So uh, we are definitely at, at, a, at a crossroads. We're at a fork in the road and we're all going to have to make a choice very soon. Yeah. It's almost like you, I imagine being in an insane asylum and the inmates have taken over the insane asylum. And when you say, uh, Hey, people are like, yeah, but I really, I really support mental health. So I can't oppose the asylum. It's like, yeah, but the insane people are running the asylum. If you support mental health, you need to be opposing the asylum because it's no longer <laughs> it's no longer about sanity. Well, yeah, I mean, th think about it this way, okay? Uh, you know, here here in Texas, the number one issue for Texas voters for almost twenty years now has been the border and immigration. You take those two, you combine them; they are the top concern for Texans. Texans at a fundamental level know that the border is not secure and that the immigration system is broken. Uh, and the policies that guide those two things are not written by us, but we have to live with the consequences of those policy decisions every single solitary day. So, you know, for, for Texans, we, we have a choice to make. You know, do we let people like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer dictate our border policy and, and our immigration policy? Or do we as Texans, reassert our status as an independent nation, reclaim our right of self-government, and take control over those two policy issues and do them in a way that works for our people and not for the two and a half million unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. Can we can we um, start with 
some of the foundations for why, because I'm listening to our conversation and, and sometimes I try to put myself in the shoes of, of I try to imagine who I used to be <laughs> and how I would hear a conversation like this and have an immediate emotional uh, gut reaction to it. Of You're talking about secession and you're talking about uh, what you're talking about is un-American and unpatriotic and all those things that you get called. I think that one of the best things you do in your book is you lay a foundation of uh, a historical foundation for something like Texas. Can you can you speak to some of of what the founders intended, and can you speak to that issue of like uh, some people have this prejudice in their mind that they they think this is something that was never supposed to be a possibility, and the founders never wanted it to be a possibility. I know that's yeah. kind of a broad. No, no, it's look, it's understandable because you know you, you have to get get your hands around the edges of this, and and part of that starts with an honest conversation about you know, our history and where we came from and what the union is and, and understand, you know, for, for those people out there that, that may be feeling kind of like you might would have back in the day, um, you know, that these types of conversations are healthy. Okay. And before I even roll it back to the construction of the union, I, I just want to put it in a modern context. One of the things that, that sort of propelled me on this journey uh, in August of 1996 was, oddly enough, a book that I had read a few years prior uh, called Global Paradox. It was written by John Nesbitt. Uh, he had written Megatrends, Megatrends 2000. You know, he's a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, but I refer to him as an economic futurist. He probably would not call himself that, but that's pretty much what, what he did, you know, as he talked about these trends. So he wrote this book called Global Paradox, where he talked about uh, the ostensibly it was about the telecommunications revolution and its effect on glo the global economy. Uh, but but his, the thesis of his book was is that the world's trend the world's trends point overwhelmingly toward economic interdependence on one hand and political independence on the other. And what he cited was this statistic that I still go around and talk about that at the end of World War II there were roughly fifty four recognized, fully sovereign, self-governing countries around the world. And by the end of the 20th century, there were 192, right? Now, those countries didn't fall from space. The earth did not get any bigger. They were people just like us that said, we believe that the best people to govern us just happen to be us. So, you know, when we talk about this, there, there's a tendency to sort of jump at Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine and let's go talk about the foundation of the union and the Republic of Texas and things of that nature. But, and, and we'll do that. But I think it's important for people to really understand that this, this explosion in the number of self-governing nation states around the world is a relatively recent phenomena in history. You know, when we're looking at the last 75 to 80 years of history, we see this explosion of self-government that, that's happening around the world and people reclaiming their right of self-determination. And oddly enough, we see it washing across the globe, but it seems like the, the, the people here, the descendants of those who signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776 and those who signed the Texas Declaration of Independence in 1836, are, are the ones that seem to be almost you know a, a little apprehensive about it. Uh, when most of those people are acting that way because of the philosophical foundations that were set in those two documents. You know, this idea that 
rights don't come from government. They come from God. You were born with those rights. And that at the end of the day, people choose how, you know, they, we have a, an ultimate right to choose how we are governed. And at any point where the government no longer suits us, we can change that government. That's foundational. It's Jeffersonian. It's Article One, Section Two of the Texas Constitution. So, when the Union was founded, you know, when you look at the United States, uh, people have to understand that it didn't start as the United States. It was thirteen colonies declaring their independence from Great Britain, placing all thirteen on equal footing with one another, and as it says in the Declaration, the state of Great Britain. Right. So they made themselves, declared themselves self-governing independent nation states. Then they came together and they formed a political and economic union twice. Right. We had the Articles of Confederation, which the states had to actually secede from to sign on to the Constitution that we have now. But that's effectively what they did. And they came together in a very limited union. That is, if you look at, at the Constitution, just kind of as it is, take all the romanticism out of it. it. It is essentially an economic union, a free trade union between the states. It's a currency union. It's a mutual defense pact. It's a postal union and a smattering of a few other things. And beyond that, every other function is delegated to the states and to the people that, uh, you know, it is reserved. I say delegated, it's reserved because we have to remember that the states created the union, not the other way around. So, you know, th this is, it's important for us to understand that fundamental construction of the union. And when you do that, you realize that technically what we're talking about with states withdrawing, you know, like Texas, is not really secession, right? It, what it is, is withdrawing membership from a political and economic union that, that no longer uh, suits our purposes or upholds our rights or recognizes our sovereignty. How would you distinguish that from secession? Because that's an interesting, I haven't heard that point before, that it's not technically secession. Yeah, and, and it's something I talk about in the book. And I'll tell you, in 2011, uh, I, I released a book called Line in the Sand. And you will see the secession word replete. I mean, it is all throughout that book. Uh, because that's where the mindset was at the time, that this was indeed a, a secession. But as part of that, you know, that last 75, 80 years of this explosion, the growth of nation states, there's also been a, a lot of work and thought put into all of the ramifications of that, and particularly the uh, relationship between the nation states and these larger unions. And so, you know, you secession is a very broad term that is really suited for the 19th century and not for the experiences that we've had post-World War II. So you'll, you'll see this evolution of, of thought, you know, whether it's academic research, academic work, uh, international law, whatever it is, where you begin to take that, that word secession and, and really break it down and begin to make certain distinctions. And so in the book, what I talk about specifically is the, um, the distinction that, that is made. If you believe that the United States of America is a single monolithic nation state unto itself, and the states are merely administrative subdivisions of that federal system. If you believe power is, is by right centralized in Washington, D.C., then Texas would be secession. You know, a withdraw, and it's not even, you know, it's just we're going to withdraw from this, this land mass. And typically now it's reserved for, you know, if we had, let's say that, that Harris County wanted to leave Texas, that would be a secession. 
right? But when we're looking at the construction of the union, if you believe that the states created the union and states are members of this union under this single governing document, then it's more appropriate to refer to Texas as a withdrawal of membership from said union. That was amazing to me the way it was a mind flip in the book, how you compare it to Brexit instead of to secession as we've talked about it historically in the U S you know, that led to the civil war. And I'd never thought about it that way. And I guarantee you a lot of people haven't thought about it in terms of Brexit. So even just framing the the, the choice of, of discussing it in that way, as we talk about a lot on the show, Carter and I, the, the language that people use, the words that people use is more important than I ever used to realize in terms of helping you to think or discouraging you from thinking. <laughs> well, look, Carrie, you're right. Look, it's important for us to understand that if we can't agree on the definition of words, then we can't have a legitimate debate, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's been one of the tools uh, of the the opposition, the, the central planners, the neo-Marxists, to, to really confuse the dictionary. Uh, you know, I, I run into it right now in this Lieutenant governor's race, you know, you, you hear the term conservative bannered about, and it has no set meaning. You, you may think it means Mm -hmm. one thing. I may think it means something else, you know, on and on. Uh, but that really gets down to the definition really of three words. Like if people want to understand Texan in this context, you got to understand the definition of three words and it's, country, nation, and state, right? Once you understand what country, nation, and state are, and you can understand what those definitions are, then so much of this makes sense. And and it leads you to some really interesting conclusions, uh, particularly when you look at the, the historical foundations of the union. You know, the union under the constitution was never meant to be a nation. Uh, James Madison even said this constitution is not a national one, but a federal one. You know, so if the United States is not a nation, what does that make the individual states? Well, it makes them nation states in the modern sense of the word. So, you know, that people conflate those terms all the time. And, and I think a lot of that is is about education, uh, where people have not been educated as to the, the gravity of the definition of those words. Well, and you've seen even in the Pledge of Allegiance, they use the word nation to refer to the United States as a single entity. Um, so... It's it seeped that that mentality has seeped pretty deep into our culture. Yeah, I, and you know, you mentioned the pledge. One of the probably most controversial sections of the book that yeah. I get asked about a lot is, you know, where you where you expose the origins of the pledge of allegiance. And yeah. you know, some people get a little upset that I don't say it, but I don't say it for two reasons. Number one is it is it is you know other than it was constructed by a socialist, um, it, it is replete with inaccuracies. You know, one nation. Is, isn't accurate because that's not what the founders and framers intended. Uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, it claims that it's indivisible, which is absolutely not true. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I mean, that's just that, that, you know, Jeff, Jefferson, I, I will tell you the founders would be up in arms if, if they ever believed that. And I mean, by founders, I mean, people like, uh, you know, Sam Houston and Travis and Crockett and Bowie. Um, but the, the other part of that too is, you know, in, in, in my Christian faith, uh, there, you know, you, you look in scripture and, and there's a, a, it says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Mm-hmm. And, and I cannot pledge allegiance to the United States of America and to Texas, 
because that would effectively make me double-minded at the moment that they have diverted where they had divergent paths. And mm -hmm. frankly, those paths are quite divergent at this point. They're going a direction that we simply cannot go. As an aside, I just want to say, I don't know if you watched our book club discussion, but our friend Keith, the hat guy who led that discussion with me, he has said to us before he over time, he stopped saying different parts of the pledge. This is before he read your book because he didn't, he evaluated them and didn't think they were true. So he, he slowly was taking out, you know, one nation. He stopped saying that part. He's an atheist. So he stopped saying under God, he got down to where all he would say is with Liberty. <laughs> it's like the shortest. Yeah, we, we, uh, we, and we did, we did watch the, the, the discussion and I can remember the, the one, the one point that I got out of it. I cannot remember who it was on there, but my wife looked at me and she says, look, I know she's grown, but is she available for adoption? And, and I, I don't even remember who, uh, who it was. I can't Aww. remember, but I mean, uh, yeah, we, we were just taken. And, and thank y'all for that, by the way. It was it was very engaging to watch. Yeah. Can you can you tell us a little bit about um, what the current state of Texas is among Texans? Say that again. I'm sorry. Where are we culturally in Texas? What's the current state of Texas? Texit in Texas. Say that ten times fast. Well, look, here's the bottom line. You know, the organization that I'm the president of has has been pursuing a referendum since day one. We know that this must ultimately end in a referendum. And, you know, the over the last few years, the push has become greater than ever because support has been greater than ever. And the, the bottom line is we would not be pushing so hard for a referendum if we thought there was a snowball's chance in hell we would lose it. So, you know, when you look at where text is, you know, post-publication of the book, as it stands today, you know, we are in an election cycle. We have three of Greg Abbott's, uh, who's the current governor. We have three of his primary challengers, the, the ones that are, you know, whipping him all over the place in the polls, have all pledged their support for giving Texans a vote on Texas. You know, I mean, imagine for a moment. I, I, it's hard for me to, when we founded the organization in 2005, you know, that, that we would be at this stage where Texas has become a mainstream political issue. You know, we knew ev eventually it would, but to be here in the moment is just amazing. To see the support at the levels that it is, that if it goes to a vote, it wins. Yeah, I participated in a lieutenant governor uh, forum up in Cook County. They did a straw poll of the attendees. 78% said they were for Texas. And so, you know, we're, we're in a situation now where uh, we, we go to a vote, we win which is one of the reasons the political establishment is pushing so hard to prevent Texans from having that vote. That makes sense. And I, I imagine once you get the vote, you would expect an influx of money from large organizations trying to uh, <laughs> push a bunch of propaganda against Texas. What are some of the biggest fears that they will be pushing and that uh, what, what are the, some of the you know arguments against it that are effective? Well, the, there are no effective arguments against it. There's just fear mongering. And well, you know, okay, effective yeah. sophistry. What sophistry is effective? How's that? Is it well, look, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you the play the, the plays that they're going to run, right? Because it, it's always the same. Look, we saw it in the Scottish Independence referendum in 2014. We saw it during the Brexit referendum. Project Fear is all they have, right? So uh, they've already started 
this, by the way, the, the anti-Texit people, a.k.a. the Washington, D.C. apologists. And, and really, it, 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 it deals with two things. Their two go-tos are, number one, uh, it means that Social Security will be cut off and Grandma's going to die in a ditch. Okay, that, that's number one. Sounds uh, about Grandma. Well, yeah, I mean, and, you know, we can, uh, that's the number one question we always get is about Social Security and those things. But the, the second one is, is that this will lead to civil war. You know, they, the, everybody wants civil war to, you know, electric boogaloo or whatever. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what they, that's what they try to present as what's going to happen, this threat or fear of violence. Uh, both of them are quite easily dismissed by any sort of rational thought whatsoever, existing federal policy. Um, you know, pure economics, the, the, you know, the, the monetary situation. I mean, these are all easily addressed. Uh, but those are the, those are the plays that they run because they've got nothing else. And, and look, I'll, I'll just lay it on you. Like I, like I say it to crowds of people all over Texas and probably will say it this weekend at one of these Lieutenant governor campaigns. It, it, it's simply this, right? If Texas was currently a free, independent, self-governing nation right now, right, self-governing in every respect of the word, we had control over our own border and immigration policy, we had our own monetary system and currency, we had our own embassies and passports, we had our own mil- we had all of the things that, you know, 195 to 200 self-governing independent nations around the world have, and instead of talking about Texas, we were being asked to join the union knowing everything you know about the federal government right now, would you vote to join the union today? (laughs) You know, you've just placed an idea in my head for, for when you move forward. I like the idea that states have to continually reassert their membership, maybe every couple of years. And if they don't say yes, they just automatically they're gone. Well, and you know, then if you think about it, you could then you could institute hazing. You know, that would be fun yeah. for you know for sure. these members when they rejoin. Uh, but yeah. instead, this reminds me of there was a a really crazy gym I joined once where they didn't let you cancel your membership, and that sucked. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> and if you don't pay us, we're going to take you to collections, even if you don't want to come to the gym anymore. It was really over the top. That's sort of, yeah. Carrie, was that a gym? Was that a gym or was that the mafia? Because that sounds an awful lot like the mafia. <laughs> it was a boxing gym. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, totally the mafia. The mafia. Yeah. Totally the mafia. <laughs> Which, you know, oddly enough, sort of sounds like the membership policy of the United States, right? It does. So, so, I mean, I hear fears, uh, I guess, related to the, the two that you're talking about. W- one of them is people cite, um, people cite numbers without really, they just cherry pick some stuff and throw it out. And then it's right. supposed to paint an entire narrative. And one of the things that's cherry picked is, well, tech, Texas, um, sends less federal money per capita to the federal government than it gets yeah. back. Therefore, uh, Texas is a welfare state. Uh, uh, it's sucking the teat of the federal government, and you guys can't survive on your own. Uh, I know that's bull, but why don't you explain um, well, why that's bull? Yeah, uh, yeah I, and I have to tell these people, I'm sorry, my actual research trumps your link to some random wallet hub article, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it's insane. Look, th- this has been studied many, many times, and we even commissioned uh, a, a report on this uh, several years ago. Uh, and what you find is, is that on average, Texas overpays 
anywhere from 103 to 160 billion dollars annually into the federal system right so what what does that look like well that is the negative economic impact that is the equivalent of hurricane harvey hitting texas every 9 months right so what what happens is when people cite some kind of bogus math like that what they include in that uh, is they include these social security payments, which are federal pension benefits, which are earned benefits. Those are contracts directly with the federal government. That's not my words. That's current federal policy, right? If you're a social security or federal pension benefit recipient and you move outside of the United States, you still collect that money. But no one is going to attribute that money to Mexico if, you know, for retirees living in, in, you know, that moved to Guadalajara or whatever. So you don't you don't include those. Those are obligations that are direct between the federal government and the individual. And Texans will still collect them because they have paid in to federal pension benefits. So when you take that off the table, what you find is that on average, Texans overpay anywhere from 103 to 160 billion dollars annually. Well, imagine for a moment that we are no longer part of the union. And if we're no longer part of the union, we're not overpaying that money. That money stays here in our pockets. Imagine the economic impact of $160 billion annual infusion into our economy. Then you take things like, you know, when people cite statistics like that, that, you know, we can't survive without the federal government, they, they ignore the study out of George Mason University that studied federal regulatory accumulation that showed that because of federal regulatory accumulation, the federal government has basically zapped 85% of our take-home pay. The, the study, the final numbers in the study showed that at the end of the study, there was a, the median household income is about $54,000, $55,000 annually. Uh, and in the absence of federal regulatory accumulation, the average household income would have been about $330,000 annually right? So what does that mean? That means Texas gives us about a 600% pay increase. Imagine that impact on, on the economy here in Texas. So, you know, the, the fact is the, the rationale is simply this. Imagine for a moment that you go to a doctor, the doctor pumps all of the blood out of your body, spills 40% of it on the floor, injects the other 60% back in your body and says, there, you wouldn't be alive without me. That is our economic relationship with the federal government. Wait, wait. I, I'm going to add to that analogy because I think it's worse. They take that 40% blood and they use it to generate some poison that they inject back into your system with the 60% that they're giving back to you. Because that's where the federal regulation thing that no one really I, – I, I hate the, the, the balance sheet of like, well, you pay this much and you get this much. I hate that analysis because it's such a snapshot in time. It has it's it's like views this as a closed system that's not dynamic. The truth is, a large percentage of your tax dollars are going to the federal government so that they can send bureaucrats into your state to ruin the economy for you. Like that's what you're spending the money to chop your own limbs off. Like you don't need that. Well, it's not helpful. No, there's it's a not. there's a part in your book where you say. It's money, the money they're sending back. You say this much of the money, et cetera. It is, in fact, money sent to the state for the implementation and the administration of federal and federally authorized programs. This is what you're talking about, right, Carter? Where it's like well, yeah, just, strings just, attached that you have yeah, to use or, it. Well, there's this. strings attached, right? right? But there's also just like to start a business in any state in the union. Some states it's easier, right? But there's 
the IRS gets involved. If you want to start, uh, if you want to start a crypto company, or if you want to start something related to healthcare, or if you want to start something in the finance industry, there's a long list of complex regulations. You've got to hire lawyers. Like it's very expensive. That's not Texas's fault. That's some dudes in Washington, mostly lobbyists who are mostly lawyers who want to build up this industry of service providers that help you navigate federal regulation. All of that is wasteful. None of that is efficient. None of that actually helps raise the standard of living of Texans or anyone else. Um, and so this idea that like you take a sum tally of like this, is how much we've given to the federal government and this is how much they've given back to you. It's like, well, they may have given some of that back to you, but a large percentage of what they've given back is poison. Absolutely. Look, you go in, we did a study uh, last legislative session, right? 86 legislative session. And what we did was we did a straight bill text search. Uh, and what we found was this, about 41% of the legislation filed mentioned a federal law, a federal regulation, a federal agency, a federal court decision. So when you look at it that way, and you understand that our le we have legislators here that are filing legislation that are effectively being written by the two and a half million unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. or K Street lobbyists. And, you know, to your point about these regulations, understand that that study also uh, also concluded that, number one, Texas was disproportionately affected by those regulations. And number two, the poor people below the poverty line and the working poor were the ones that were disproportionately affected by it. So, you know, what we find here is, is that Texit means for us, not only the ability to shuck off those regulations, right? But it does two really important things. Number one is it allows us to remove the thing that is keeping most people in poverty. And number two, it allows us to restore that bridge between poverty and prosperity, that of entrepreneurship, by lowering the barrier to entry for people who want to go out there and engage in whatever type of business they want to engage in that, that are being prevented by doing so but from federal regulations being administered by the state of Texas. Yeah. And the other thing that being a part of the union ties you to, and I know you talk about this in the book, is you're tied now to the United States monetary system, which means... Um, when they borrow money, it's in your name, and now you've got to pay it back. Um, more, normally, they don't borrow money to make your life better. And when they print money, uh, that hurts the poorest among all of us whenever money is printed because um, the, the, the value of that new money is mostly accrued to Wall Street and uh, people with connections to uh, the Federal Reserve. And by the time you get the money, if you get any of it, it's, it's inflationary. And the poor obviously spend a larger percentage of their income on food and shelter and important stuff. And so if it all if everything costs more, it's a tax on them. It's uh, I, I don't mind a rant. I'm that just you're fine. You've got me riled up because I I uh, I can't stand this idea that the federal government is somehow helping Texans. I mean, you've got uh, you're you're a. You've got more oil than maybe Alaska has more. I'm not sure, but maybe it's Texas. I don't know. You've got massive independent energy. You've got a huge border. You've got a booming economy. You've got plenty of people. Like there's Texas doesn't need. There's plenty of tiny, crappy states around the, the world that are smaller and less powerful and have fewer resources than Texas. Why can't Texas make it without, you know, Joe I, Biden? Look, I, I tell people all the time. <laughs> yeah, or, or as I like to call him, President Pudding Pop. 
But, you know, (laughs) here's what it boils down to. If you don't think Texas can make it, take out a globe, spin it around, and put your finger on any landmass except for Antarctica. And what you're going to find there are a people that have their right of self-government, right, that have exercised their right of self-determination and self-government that have figured all of these things out. They have their own currency, their own economy, their own military, they have control of their own border policies, all of these things. And so, and then ask yourself this question, if those people can make it, why can't we? What is it they have that we don't have? If someone with all the advantages that Texas has can't make it, then no one can. Yeah. So you, you talk about, uh, in the book, when you compare it to Brexit, you also talk about Catalonia Mm. and Spain. Can you, can you give people an idea of that timeline? Because I, it helped to put things in perspective for me to read that these are, this is about changing the mindset of people. And I think a lot of people there, we have our minds sometimes our mind is imprisoned and we don't even realize it in terms of what we think is possible. Mine certainly was for a long time. And so for people to leave that prison and to start thinking about things differently, you know, where are we on the timeline? If you compare us to something like uh, one of those other independence movements. Um, probably, uh, I think where, where we are, if we're looking at some modern day comparisons, I think we're probably, we're, we're closer to where Brexit was right around the time of the UK general election before Cameron called for the vote. Like if I'm, if I'm looking for a clear analog, that's where it would be. Uh, and you know, for, for folks out there that, that don't understand what that reference is, First, let, let me just say this first. As part of the work that we have done if, to found the TNM before we did it, we did this exhaustive study of independence movements around the world, both modern and historical, right? And we started that back in 2003. And what that did for us was it gave us both a historical perspective and a perspective in modern day politics that allowed us to see number one, that we needed an effective political advocacy organization to go out and, and make this happen. Uh, but number two is, is it helped us identify some clear analogs, some things that we knew that we needed to do, but more importantly, some of the pitfalls that we needed to avoid. It's one of the reasons that when you look at the Texas nationalist movement, you see that it talks about the political, cultural, and economic independence of Texas. That was one of the byproducts of that study is the understanding that we have to really fight for independence on all three of those fronts. Because if we don't, and you just focus narrowly on political independence, you wind Mm -hmm. up losing that political independence because you've lost your economic independence or your cultural independence. Okay. So, so that, that's part of it. But that being said, it allowed us to create when we started the TNM to have a very active international engagement program, both with independence movements around the world, uh, both successful or in process, as well as independence movements among the states here in the U.S., And part of that led to forging ties with uh, members and leaders in the UK Independence Party. So we had a real kind of front row seat to the Brexit process. And, you know, one of the things that that we saw was that UKIP operated primarily as a pressure group, right? They were a political party. Uh, They have a first past the post system there in UK politics, but because of proportional representation, the European Union, UKIP was able to get seats 
in the European Parliament, which led to Nigel Farage's phenomenal damp rag speech. But what, what it allowed them to do was function effectively as a pressure group. And in doing so within the UK, uh, they began to encourage the people to get way more vocal, way more public with their support for Brexit, which in turn led to political pressure. And so leading, you know, heading into that UK general election, uh, you wound up having UKIP professionalizing. You had this, this never-ending drumbeat of pro-Brexit people that were pushing the Conservative Party, particularly David Cameron, uh, to, you know, he, he knew that he was in, in political trouble when those general election results came in. And UKIP collectively had the third highest vote total uh, of all the UK political parties, knocking the Liberal Democrats completely off the board. I mean, they destroyed them. And so Cameron, in a last-ditch effort, went to Brussels to try to negotiate some concessions on behalf of the UK to try to address some of these concerns and head it off at the pass. And the Brussels politicians, being typical Brussels politicians, sent him back with the weakest, most ridiculous concessions you could imagine. One of them being a reduction on the VAT tax for feminine hygiene products. So the the big headline when Cameron That's came back. That's what UKIP was all about, right? So that, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Cam, Cameron, go, Cameron goes to Brussels and, and he literally comes back and the headlines is, you know, David Cameron's concessions were an elimination of the tampon tax. And and at that moment, they all knew that, that they were screwed. And so Cameron was forced by that by that UK general election result and uh and this you know this lack of concessions from Brussels he was forced to call a vote he thought he was going to be able to head it off at the pass but where where it ended up was you know with the people vote after a snap election i mean you could call it that because they had a very limited amount of time but after that you you wound up seeing uh project fear fall and the remainers fall and you saw the people have their voices heard on withdrawing from the European Union. That that stage right before the general election is where I believe that we're at right now. Wow. That's that's inspiring. Or yeah, that's uh that's so, farther along than I had hoped, I think. Yeah. Well think about it. I mean, you know, we we talked about it at the very beginning of this where you've got the sitting governor of Texas is being challenged by three main people running for his office in the Republican primary who have all publicly and repeatedly endorsed a Texas vote. You know, I'm the only Lieutenant governor candidate who's done it. But if you go look at, at, at our PACS website at takeTexasBack.com, you're going to see people running for office, both as challengers and as incumbents that have supported a Texas vote. You know, we got, uh, be, you know, state representative Kyle Biederman at the beginning of this last session, introduced our legislation, the Texas Independence Referendum Act. So we are on this trajectory to where, to where the vote is inevitable, right? We, we know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Uh, for us to make it happen, we have to clear the board of all the obstructions that we've got in Texas government right now. So what do you need? There's a part of the book where you talk about what we need. Uh, I need more coffee. Oh, you mean, <laughs> sorry. I've already, I've already drained my cup. Um, no, it, look, there, there are, look, there, there are a lot of things. We know that all roads lead through the legislature and, and it, and it all goes through this referendum vote. So to make that happen, we have to ensure that 
we have officials in Texas government, particularly in the legislature, but also in the governor's mansion and, and in the lieutenant governor's office, that are at a minimum in support of letting the people vote on it. We're, we're, what we're saying is, is that it, it is irrelevant to us whether or not this politician is in favor of Texas, as long as two things exist. Number one, that they all honor their oath to the Texas Constitution and agree to uphold Article 1, Section 2, which reserves this right to vote on this issue to the people of Texas, right? So they, at a minimum, because they take an oath to the document, they have to at least support it. And uh, number two, are willing to carry out the, whatever the will of the people of Texas is in that vote, because we don't want to wind up in a position where the people of Texas get a vote, we vote for it, and then we have people that didn't support it dragging their feet uh, on implementation after that vote. So it, it's, it really is, is the tale of the tape. I, I say this and there is no hyperbole here. Uh, I believe the next 100 years of Texas history are being written right now over the, over the coming weeks and months. And so for us to get the vote on Texas, uh, we've got to make sure that we are out there supporting candidates that at a minimum uphold our right to vote on the issue in this coming election. I mean, you see what that kind of happened with Brexit, right? They voted for Brexit and then people just dragged their feet. I mean, eventually it kind of happened, but not. Yeah, look, at least Cameron it. had the decency to resign. I mean, he knew that he was he was not going to he was not a supporter. He at least had the decency to resign. But Theresa May filled uh, that entire cabinet uh, with with people, you know, with the exception of maybe like a David Davis or someone like that. But, you know, with a, a lot of remainers or as they became known, Ramoners, you know, they were not willing to accept the results of the Brexit vote. And, uh, you know, we, we don't want that. We're, we're going to need strong representatives that are willing to represent the will of the people of Texas in a Texas vote. Now, I've got another question and, and it comes from someone in chat. I'm going to reword it, though. I'm in California right now. Are you worried about us? Because... A bunch of uh, we're mostly horrible people, and no. we moved to Texas, and we can vote against. No. Not <laughs> we're mostly horrible, and we like to move like locusts to other states and destroy them, which we did to Colorado. And I think we're in the process of doing. Is there like a race condition here where enough of us move to Texas and vote for socialism before you get a chance to do this? Well, look, I'll, I'll tell you what, what my experience has been, and then I'll tell you empirically what the reality is, right? There is a, a, a big concern among people that primarily these uh, Silicon Valley tech giants are moving here. They're bringing thousands of workers, uh, and they are going to vote here for what they, what they are leaving, okay? But the flip side of that is, is that people are moving here to Texas from other states, because they are political, cultural, and economic refugees, right? They, they understand that the state that they are leaving is effectively lost to the principles that they hold dear and that there is no recovery. So they come to Texas. They come to Texas as a, as a safe haven, as a place to be with people that share their ideals, their values. And the vast majority of those people are some of the strongest, most pro-liberty people you could possibly imagine. Uh, and, and I will tell you, in a conversation that I had with uh, one of the candidates that's running for governor, uh, he, he expressed some concern that he was getting some criticism because he was not from Texas. And I said, look, we can ask this question all the time. 
we get asked about, you know, whether or not you have to be native born to be a member of our organization. And the answer is no. And the answer and the reason why it's no is quite simple. Sam Houston was not from Texas. Davy Crockett, not from Texas. Travis, not from Texas. Bowie, not from Texas. And, and if they can fight and in some instances die for our independence, then who are we to set the bar any higher? So when you look at it that way and understand that so many of these people are political and economic and cultural refugees, uh, you, you have to ask yourself, in reality, how is that playing out in the polls? And I go back to the Cruz O'Rourke race, uh, you know, the, the last time that uh, we had those, those two guys going against each other in that Senate race. And when you look at the exit polling from that race, what you find out is that non-native Texans broke for Cruz over O'Rourke. And as a matter of fact, that's who won the race wow. for him. And that's not our polling. That's exit polling straight from Governor Greg Abbott's campaign and from the Texas Tribune, which is absolutely no fans of our issue, mind you. Uh, but, you know, both both exit polling, uh, they, they both came to the same conclusion, that non-native-born Texans broke for Cruz over O'Rourke, and it's what, what helped uh, defeat Beto O'Rourke. So empirically and, and maybe spiritually, intellectually, whatever you want to call it, uh, I, I don't have a lot of fear about that. But that just because I don't have that fear today doesn't mean that it's not a concern for tomorrow. And I will say I was one of those people. So I'm originally from South Carolina. And actually, when I went to the Alamo, it was nice to see they have different memorials where you can see the states that people were from and you can see who oh. died from South Carolina for defending Texas. Um, but I'm originally from South Carolina, but I came here via California. Like some people, I did my time there in between and, um, and voting for Ted Cruz was the first time I've ever voted for a Republican. And, and it was the first time I ever voted in the state of Texas. And so, and I know others like me, so I've, I'm in the same boat with you. I'm worried about, we talk about all the time on the show. I am worried about the contingent of locusts, as you put it, Carter, who come, who come and bring the same voting patterns with them. Who They realize they're escaping something, but they don't quite understand they're escaping they don't themselves. don't know why. Hey, this place <laughs> yeah. sucks, but I don't know why. I'm going to go do the same thing elsewhere. Right? Yeah. yeah. Can't imagine. Yeah. Can't imagine. Yeah, but then there's also people who are awake and who who are, as you say, um, gosh, I like the way you keep hitting on economic, cultural, political in terms of economic, cultural, political independence and economic, cultural, political refugees. And I'm going to start thinking about those three things a little bit more. Um, but there are people who recognize that, that that what they're escaping, like myself, and they don't want to create it here. And I'm counting on those people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll, I'll tell you, we did an event at um, this uh, this microbrewery in Conroe, and you know we were doing this this event with Redstone Red Zone Politics, and I was speaking about Texas, the Texas book, and somebody got up during the Q and A because I always do Q and As, uh, and somebody got up and and made some kind of comment about kicking Californians out and somebody popped up and said, I'm from California. And somebody said, I'm from Michigan. And I thought there was about to be a fist fight. And, and I had to, I had to go through it just like, just like I did with you guys. I mean, people need to understand that Texas was founded by people from other places, you know, uh, and, and that was part of it. We, you know, they, when people immigrated to Texas, 
uh, they came here looking for opportunity, but they brought with them a heritage and tradition of believing in freedom and, and liberty and independence. And so when the Mexican government did the things that it did, you know, it, it usurped the Constitution of 1824, replaced it with a military dictatorship, uh, began to come after firearms and, and means of protection, um, you know, and, and eventually carried out a military invasion. Um, those, those people kind of got down into their freedom DNA, if you want to call it that, and, and they found it objectionable. And they decided not to run, but to stand and fight because it was the right thing. And so many of those folks uh, that are coming here now, uh, and you know, we, we meet them all the time. We talk to them all the time. They are political, cultural, and economic refugees. Uh, I, I know one, one guy specific personally, and, and not, not one guy, one guy doesn't make the, the trend, right? But, but I know this particular story is that he was a Republican policy analyst for the California State Assembly. And, you know, he was doing all the things he could do there, but the big fat fight that he had was in the school districts. And they were indoctrinating his, his children in transgender ideology and, you know, some of those things that he just did not agree with. And he kept fighting the fight. He realized while he was doing that, you know, policy an, uh, analysis for the assembly, he was losing his community and, and there was no way he was going to win that fight. And he pulled up stakes, moved his family and his business just, <clears throat> excuse me, just north of Houston, uh, because he knew that Texas was a place that would be a safe haven for freedom and liberty for his family. This is encouraging because uh, the way I, here's the way, here's the way I just want to, here's how I'm thinking of this. Okay. Yes. Californians were locusts and went to Colorado and effectively ruined Colorado. As far as I can tell, um, sorry, Coloradans. Uh, but maybe the motivation for people to go all the way to Texas is a little bit different than past motivations for exoduses from California. And maybe that is more of a political and cultural, uh, battle that they've been, they feel like they've just lost in California. So perhaps, perhaps it's a different set of people that are going to Texas than just than, than I have in the past exited California just because it was too expensive or whatever. Do you remember Thelma and Louise Carter? I never when watched they, Thelma okay. and Louise. So they, no. Louise really didn't want to go through Texas. Okay. <laughs> There's like Texas had a bad rap <laughs> to some people. I think of Californians like that. I know when I first moved here, I had friends in California. It blew my mind. They were like, you're moving to Texas? Like, like as if it was this crazy uh, wasteland. Uh, we got to put on my handmaid's outfit every day and go make <laughs> go make food in the kitchen for men before turn I your butter. get to birthing and yeah. turning butter. Yeah, I think some people have this stereotype about it that they don't have about Colorado, so they're more afraid of coming here. The let's say the right kind the the right kind of people have the stereotype. The right kind of people that you would prefer not to be here anyway. Right. Well, so just let the stereotype sit is what you're saying. Let yeah, it, yes. Let it well, you know, that's like the meme that circulates around and, you know, it, it says, you know, folks, uh, you know, for those of you moving to Texas, here's a map and they give them a map of Oklahoma. Yes. You know, like that. <laughs> I have, um, I, I don't know how long we have you, Daniel, and I'm wondering if you have a few more minutes, if we could uh, ask you a few questions from our audience. Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay, cool. So uh, forgive me, it's been a couple months since we had book club. But so I, I, if I'm asking your question, I don't remember who asked these. So apologies, I don't know who asked them. But one is, um, Daniel, if Texas were to become its own country, 
what happens to all of the nukes? What happens to the nukes? Yeah, you know, it, it's going to be interesting uh, because j just to kind of preface it a little bit, and, and I don't want to go too far in the weeds, but post-Texit vote, nothing changes until policy is implemented, right? Things happen. There are four stages, four things that have to be addressed. There's constitutional issues, statutory issues, international covenants, treaties, and agreements, and finally, the negotiated issues, okay? So that's the first time that we have to sit across the table from the federal government. Now, the issues and negotiated issues are actually kind of big issues, uh, but there's not a lot of them. And part of that discussion is that of the federal debt, right? The national debt and what Texas portion is of that debt. Now, I talk about it in the book and I talk about how Texas will have to assume some portion of that, but the percentage and how it's calculated and what that equates to is, is really what's up for discussion. Now, we have to obviously establish some, some sort of credit for the 103 to $160 billion average annual overpayment. But more, you know, and then there are issues like the Medicare trust funds that Texans have paid into and things of that nature. Okay. So when it comes down to nukes, I think it's important that we talk about that related to military bases and military assets and understand that all of those things were paid for by a portion of Texan money, right? So if we're going to assume a portion of the debt, if, there, if the United States is going to force us to assume a portion of the debt, then by all rights, we have the right to a percentage of the things that were paid for with that debt. And that would be facilities, military equipment, and yes, including nuclear weapons. Now, would, would Texas end up with the nukes? As part of the negotiation, probably not. We probably wouldn't. Um, at the end of the day, the most likely scenario is that Texas winds up in, in a mutual defense agreement with the United States on the other side of this, and the disposition of those nukes would probably be handled under that mutual defense treaty uh, where you would have perhaps joint bases or all the bases now managed by the Texas military department, but of joint use between Texas and the United States military. That is the most likely scenario. And that's what's, and that's actually based off of what we've seen happen around the world over the last 75 to 80 years. Cool. Good question. Um, Carrie, do you have more? Or do you want me to start? Reading yes, I have, I have one more. I have a couple more, but I'll, I may not read them all. Okay. What would the, what do you think the federal government reaction would be if Texas decided they, that we wanted to leave the union and do you think other States would follow? Okay. So, um, the reaction, I will say this, that there kind of dovetails into that one project fear thing about civil war, right? That it would, they would use military force to keep Texas in. It, it's not, that's not reality. That's what I call apocalypse pornography. Um, but, but here's what it boils down to. The federal government has two opportunities to stop Texas before it happens. Number one is by threat, coercion, whatever, to politicians to prevent them from giving us a vote, right? But once it goes to a vote, that comes the second time that they have to stop it. And that will be the what we refer to as the billion-dollar propaganda campaign to scare Texans into staying in the union. Right. That it, you know, they'll do all the all the wonderful things. You know, we'll probably get another Toby Keith video or something, uh, you know, some, 
amber waves of grain, you know, that sort of thing. And then the ads about letting grandma die in a ditch, right? So that that's what they'll do. But Texans don't scare. You know, we are the place that, that brandished the come and take it flag. So once we win the vote, then their ability to directly stop it without major consequence evaporates. And, and I say that because when people think about perhaps the use of military force, you know, they forget things like about one in six, uh, one in six troops uh, in the United States military, active combat duty troops are Texans, right? So uh, imagine what is the reaction of the Texans going to be when they get an order from President Pop saying, go bomb Walmart at Houston, um, you know, not going to react well. I additionally, uh, you find that because the United States has pursued a, a, an overt global foreign policy of supporting the right of self-determination around the world, that you're going to see a massive international backlash against the United States if they elect to use military force. But I think what is more important in that scenario is the reaction that you would get from other states that are probably a little more ideologically aligned with Texas yeah. Uh, when they hear that the federal government wants to murder Texans because we voted wrong. Remember, yeah. the only crime that we have here is invoking our rights under Article 1, Section 2 and voting. That's the only thing that we've done. We're not taking up arms. We're not having a revolution. What we're doing is we're saying, should the state of Texas reassert its status as an independent nation? And then the people saying yes. So they don't have a pretext to, to have some sort of military invasion. And, and the consequences for them will be far worse for us. Uh, they, they pull that trigger. The, re, you know, the United States will spin apart. Uh, it will send the United States economy into the toilet because at the end of the day, uh, the United States economy needs Texas more than we need them. So any type of action or aggression that causes disruption in the economy will just send them straight into a depression. So there are a lot of reasons why it's not practical. We've gamed them out. We know for a fact that they have gamed them out and they know what they can and can't do and they know what those consequences will be. So what can you practically expect the reaction will be? When we get to that fourth stage of negotiation, they're going to be just absolute bastards. I mean, I, there's no other way to put it. Uh, that's how they're going to be. And, and you know, we saw that happen with Brexit. We saw it in the Brexit negotiations with the withdrawal agreement, where what they're going to do is they're going to try to bully us and they're going to try to give us as unfavorable terms as they possibly can. But at the end of the day, Texas holds all the cards. We're in the catbird seat. And, um, you know, if, if we're keeping 320 to $360 billion annually here, which is the sum total of that, that, uh, <clears throat> that tax, then we're going to be absolutely fine. If they threaten to cut off Social Security to our federal pensioners, piece of cake. That that amounts to about $74 billion annually, and the overage that we pay will be mo more than enough to take care of it. Wow. Do you want to ask that There's question from G-Man, Carter? Or uh, Which one? Oh, will they be uh, allowed to vote? Um, sure. <laughs> if Texas secedes and Texans... And Texas residents are receiving federal benefits like Social Security. Will they be allowed to vote? I assume he means will they be allowed to vote in Texas? Yeah, I mean, it It, it really depends on what the laws are. I'm guessing that's a, a post-Texas question. And, yeah. and ultimately, like yeah, that'll ultimately be up to, to the people of Texas, right? I mean, when when Texas 
when Texans make the vote, when they have the vote and they say, look, we're out of here, uh, then there's a lot of policies that need to be spun up. And of course, one of those is going to be, uh, you know, a re- probably a reexamination of, of our voting system uh, and who, who can and cannot vote uh, and, you know, what those criteria are. But the other part of that, too, is, you know, how we set our immigration and citizenship policy. Will Texas allow dual citizenship? And will that will that be, um, you know, contingent upon someone surrendering their federal benefits? I don't think so. I don't think Texans would want people to surrender receiving a benefit that they have paid into. You know, I mean, let's be honest. It's not a benefit. It's a pension. You paid into it. You should get out of it. And frankly, I think people should be more concerned about the federal government, um, you know, the, the federal government, federal pension system going absolutely belly up than what the effect of Texas would be on that. I've got a question that maybe is a, I hope Carrie's eyes don't gloss over because it's about money, but uh, okay. <laughs> about economics. Uh, I, part of me thinks that if, if you're going to do this, maybe you need to preemptively spin up alternative currency now, because if things get to a stage where the federal government is either actively opposing and let's assume that you're wrong and there could be some sort of hot war, although I tend to agree with you that that wouldn't happen, but uh, or they're just being jerks at the negotiating table. Um, the United States dollar is predominantly propped up by perception of the United States as stable and strong. And this does threaten that perception, no matter which way it goes, that perception is threatened. And so you could see a collapse of the dollar that is precipitated by a positive vote in Texas to secede. And it seems like it would be nice to have a uh, something already in place to kind of absorb some of that potential pain, at least for Texans. Maybe people in Massachusetts would feel the pain, but Texans might not as much. Yeah, you know, and and here's the good news about it. You know, day one, we don't have to have, uh, you know, our, our own currency. But the distance between where we are now and spinning one up is actually shorter than most people may realize. Uh, one of the pieces of legislation that we helped get passed uh, several sessions back was the Texas Gold Depository Act. And, uh, you know, that was the the big headline. I don't know if you guys had, had heard about that, but the, the big headline was Texas is getting its own Fort Knox, right? That was the big headline. But frankly, that wasn't the most exciting thing that was in that legislation. The, the exciting line in that legislation was that it called for the comptroller to create an electronic system of transfer denominated by deposits of precious metals in the depository. Now, if you unwind that, what you get is it instructed the comptroller to create an electronic metals-backed currency that was backed by deposits in the Texas Gold Depository of precious metals. So, you know, not saying that that's the direction that we need to go. I I think there's a lot of debate that needs to happen over what sort of currency we're going to have. But my point here is, is that we are not as far from the implementation of our own Texas currency uh, as most people might think. Well, even if that takes time, there's a simple answer that you could do in the meantime. A stopgap measure is for Texas to just say, in the meantime, we're not regulating or taxing any cryptocurrencies. So if the dollar starts to collapse, have at it, Texans. Preserve your value somewhere else, and we'll figure out our currency as time moves on. Okay, that's good, because I honestly, I thought you were going to say Coles Bucks or Chuck E. Cheese tickets. So I, I like I was going to say, 
lumber because i was telling carter the price lumber. of lumber <laughs> yeah. yeah we're we're renovating a house here in texas and the lumber chart looks like the bitcoin chart it just keeps going oh it's it's crazy <laughs> but you know it, it, what's what's cool about this is since we have the ability texas gives us the ability to to think about and implement things that we cannot even you know we can have conversations that we cannot have as part of the union, right? As it stands right now, we can have a big currency conversation about a Texas currency, but until we're out of the union, it's all just academic. It's all hypothetical, yeah. but you know, and so I've heard all kinds of, of potential plans floated for what Texas could do post Texas, like a, a basket of commodities, you know, as, as a potential peg for the dollar or, you know, not necessarily a gold standard, but a precious metal standard, or, I mean, there's, there's tons, but the beauty about Texas is, it gives us the opportunity to have these conversations where they can have meaningful outcomes as opposed to just, you know, fantasy football, you know? Yeah. Right. So this is a, this is a question that you address in the book. And I think it might be for any casual observer that comes across this, who comes across this podcast and has never thought about this topic before. Mm -hmm. It's usually the number one question I've heard whenever I even tweet about you or the book um, people say, isn't that illegal? You can't, Texas, Texas can't leave the union. Isn't that illegal? And I know you have a whole chapter on this, which is great. And I, there's an excerpt of it online if people want to find it, but could you just summarize a couple of the bullet points there for anybody who's having this conversation with friends and family? Uh, so I, I, look, I'll tell you how I handle it because honestly, I get that. I, I've heard that so much. I've just kind of lost I've just kind of lost my gusto in, in dealing with it. So what I tell people is this, if you say it's illegal for something to be illegal, there must be a law against it. Please show me the law. I'll wait. Um, because it doesn't exist, right? Break out the federal law, break out the state, but show me that it's illegal. Well, they say, well, it's unconstitutional. Well, that's cool. Uh, you know, same answer. Uh, if it's unconstitutional, please show me in the constitution where it's forbidden because, Article 1, Section 10 of the United States Constitution lists everything states are forbidden from doing. Guess what's not on that list? Leaving. Leaving's not on the list. So what does that mean? Tenth Amendment of the Constitution says any powers not granted to the federal government or prohibited to the states or reserved to the states and the people respectively, right? So what does that mean? Well, that means we have to turn our little books over to Texas law. There's nothing against in Texas law. What does the Texas Constitution say? Well, Article 1, Section 1 says that Texas is a free and independent state and that the perpetuity of the union depends on the right of local self-government unimpaired to all the states. That's a trigger clause that says that at the moment the right of local self-government is impaired, the union's done. But more importantly, Article 1, Section 2 of the Texas Constitution is an explicit reservation of the right of the people. And it says that all political powers inherent in the people, all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit, that the, the faith of the people of Texas stands pledged to the preservation of a Republican form of government and subject to this limitation only, the people have at all times the inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their government in such manner as they may think expedient. Now, inalienable means inalienable. Right. That means that our right of self-determination is just as inalienable as our right to worship according to the dictates of our conscience or our freedom of speech or our right to keep and bear arms. It is inalienable, which means it cannot be taken away from us. So, you know, there, there is no law. It's not illegal. As a matter of fact, the United States has signed numerous treaties 
in in uh, particularly in the 20th century, upholding the right of self-determination. In fact, the federal government has sent our grandfathers and our fathers and our mothers and our uh, brothers and sisters and some of us that are watching here and our sons and daughters to fight and in some instances die for the right of self-determination for other people, right? So you're going to tell me that self-determination is illegal for us, but not for those people. I, I don't buy it, and no one can show me the law that says otherwise. Yeah, it's kind of like asking why. <laughs> hey, I, I, we're we're being taken hostage. I'm going to escape. No, the hostage taker says that's not allowed. Like, bingo. Yeah, I don't. Who cares? <laughs> Come on, it's against the rules, guys. Yeah, that's not how kidnapping works. <laughs> who who cares? Yeah. Uh, all right. Do you have more questions, Carrie, or should I read through some super chat questions? Oh, pull up the super chat ones. I just have a personal question for Daniel. Should I join the Texas Guard? I found that they, <laughs> I found that they have a lower, uh, unlike the National Guard, they don't have the same age cutoff. You can join until sixty mm -hmm. something. Uh, I, I, look, I will tell you that for the longest time, we have promoted, you know, people joining the Texas State Guard. Right, Texas. For those who don't know. Texas has its own military. It's called the Texas Military Department. It's a three branch. It's made up of the Army National Guard, Air National Guard, and the Texas State Guard. The Texas State Guard is the one component of the Texas Military Department that cannot be federalized. They cannot be called into federal service. And so we have, for the longest time, advocated for people to join the Texas State Guard. As a matter of fact, as as uh, you know, one of the the uh, proposals that I put forward in my my campaign for lieutenant governor is that we actually fully militarize the state guard and we utilize them in a role uh, primarily to shore up uh, our border defense. Right, but the state guard has a, a lot of uses. They they have a lot of humanitarian. Uh, they have a, a big humanitarian mission. But but I would say this to answer your question: uh, until until you get a new governor a.k.a. a new commander-in-chief, and the current adjutant general of the Texas State Guard is replaced, uh, I would not encourage anyone to join the State Guard, not not until the dust settles on uh, sort of the the wokeness that has begun to infiltrate under the watch of this, uh, this commander-in-chief, Greg Abbott. Well. Carrie, you can volunteer your services as an expert in woke to help them implement it properly. <laughs> to avoid it. <laughs> To avoid it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't have to say avoid. Um, all right. We got a question from Colin P., which I think in general reflects uh, a lot of the angst that I hear about stuff like this. Um, Colin says, there are only three truly sovereign nations in the world, Russia, China, and the USA. Every other nation bows the knee in some way. Which will Texas choose? This is this idea that... Uh, I guess there's only superpowers exist, basically, and everyone's got to agree in some way. What do you think? I, I don't. I don't subscribe to that. I mean, it 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 really runs against the grain of the idea of of self government, and and I would I would push back on that idea that there are only three fully sovereign countries. Yes, they're they're superpowers. They're economic superpowers, uh, but that doesn't mean that you are forced to to be controlled by any of those superpowers. Texas can be Texas, just like many other countries are their own country. They, they enjoy the right of self-government. But I think it speaks to the, the conversation we had earlier, why we pursue political, cultural, and economic independence. Uh, 
what what we saw in the study of all these independence movements around the world and countries that got their independence was really that is that you had ones that pursued their political independence but wound up economically dependent on some other country, maybe the one that they left or some other superpower. Uh, and and that's not the position that you want to be in, because if any of those three are under the control of someone else, you were never truly independent. Yeah. Yeah. Super this Iron is, Bob says, uh, oh, can I cut him a quick, this is not a super yeah. chat, but I just wanted, you know, Seiji says this guy is a boss. <laughs> it's a compliment. <laughs> thank, thank you. Oh, Hang on, hang on. Is this is this where I bring out the prop that my kid got me for Christmas? <laughs> what oh, is nice. that? Is that meat? Huh? Is that meat? What is that? That's no, that's that my okay. So my, my son <laughs> got me a, a prop from The Walking Dead for Christmas. And it's, oh, it's oh. Negan's baseball bat. Lucille. It's, it's Lucille. Lucille. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I thought that was a large stick of meat. Well, you know, that would be awesome too. You know, it's, it's way past lunchtime. So, uh, super iron Bob just makes a comment, but I'll turn it into a question. He, he says, repeal the 17th, bring back the state's participation in the federal government. Uh, this is a, a whole category of suggestions. We see a lot of naysayers for, uh, Texas or similar movements that say, well, we, instead we should focus on fixing what's in Washington. Why don't you comment on that? Well, I, look, I, I can tell you for, for the duration of my life, uh, I have seen campaign promise after campaign promise from politicians promising to fix Washington, D.C. And so I, I would suggest that you look over the course of your life and, and figure out the traje trajectory yourself. Uh, if the federal government, if the federal system could be fixed, then you would at least see some sort of hope that it was moving in that direction at some point. But instead, that's not the case. You know, when you look at it from a Texas perspective, uh, the relationship between Texas and the federal system has only gotten worse. You know, the federal debt is higher than it's ever been. Uh, you know, we're watching, we're watching this uh, inflation happen. You know, I can remember uh, what the dollar was worth when I crossed that proverbial line in the sand in 1996. Uh, you know, that that trajectory is there. I would say that from 1996 to today that I am far less free than I was then. Um, so, you know, there's there's no there's no fixing it. it. It is immune to reform. It is immune to repeal. And so we have to make the hard choice. And, and I get it For, from whatever sense that, that people have. They think that it is an institution worth saving. And I would, I would suggest that it's the principles that are worth preserving, yeah. not the institution. And if you're going to preserve those principles, you cannot do so with this institution. You must assert your status as an independent nation and set the example for the rest of the states and the rest of the world. Yeah. I, have a, I, I have a comment from Thomas St. Thomas. He says, Shaq is a Texan. Make a $20 bill with Shaq's name on it, and I'll move there. Just a suggestion for you, Daniel. <laughs> Put that on your agenda. Put that, that on the list. That sounds like a Secret Service agent trying to bait me into counterfeiting. <laughs> That's, uh, it's got the vibe to it. <laughs> yeah, he's a glowy. Um, yeah, I, with the last comment, I, th I think I I've noticed this, and I don't know if you've noticed this as well, but there seems to be a set of people who um, – say, no, we should focus on saving the federal government. And I would agree with your 
assertion there, which is it's the principles that matter. Those that's what needs to be saved, and practically saving Washington's not likely, uh, even as difficult as it might be to to do a Texit. But then there's I think sometimes there's some frustration because I'm seeing it a little bit in chat where people are just there's people who just are naysayers about everything and they're like, it's lost and you can never do Texas. You're living in a fantasy. It's uh, there's, but there's no, is there any other positive uh, idea that anyone has that you've heard other than those two fix Washington or leave? I, I can't think of a third alternative. And and I, I'd like to just ignore people who don't have at least some vision for a path forward. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's funny to me because for, for many years, you know, we, we would hear this type of criticism about, well, you know, that's just sheer fantasy. But really, what is the greater fantasy? That a people with a history and a spirit of independence would stand up and reclaim that independence or that you're somehow going to miraculously fix a federal system that's run by two and a half million unelected bureaucrats who don't want it fixed, right? Wh which one is really the, the pipe dream? Uh, and I can tell you from reality. I see Texas advance every day from, from the time we founded the TNM in 2005 to today. I have seen Texas advance. We went from polling in single digits in 2005, uh, which I remind everyone is that we've always polled higher than the approval rating of the U.S. Congress, which typically polls right above or below that of leprosy, right? Um, you know, so, so, you know, we have, but we have always every single day advanced and grown to the point now that it has entered into mainstream political thought that we are on the verge potentially of having a vote on this issue with legislation introduced in the last session that would have done just that. And, and yet when I look at the people who say, well, we need to fix Washington, D.C., I'm like, show me the first shred of evidence that you have advanced a, a fix on the federal system. Yeah. I can show progress. They can't. And so yeah. I, I, I will take my chances with Texas and the people of Texas every single solitary day and twice on Sundays. That is yeah. an there's excellent a lot of people point. Like, you can't really put the genie yeah. back in the bottle. It's sort of, at the, there's one part mm -hmm. of your book where you talk about the, the size of the government has gotten to, I think you said, if it were a country, it would be the fifth largest country in the world. Is that right? That's how yeah, big it is. It's massive. I mean, the federal super state, it, it is, it is so far out of its box. Um, you know, how, it's, it's the thing about dictators, you know, in mm -hmm. tyrannical governments is they never give up that sort of power willingly. They wind up eventually collapsing from within. So, mm -hmm. you know, if the United States is on this trajectory, we, that's a, that's a ride that we can't go on. If we believe what we say, we believe if we are true to our beliefs, then that is a that is a ride that we can't take with them. Yeah. What do you think about some of these other movements? I mean, it's in New Hampshire right now. I just watched uh, a free state, uh, one of the free staters, stand up in front of the New Hampshire legislature and argue, "Hey, we should leave uh, the union." What uh, What do you know about other states uh, and their plans and can you compare it to what's going on in Texas? Well, at, look, at Elliot Axelman uh, is the the chairman of the Foundation for New Hampshire Independence. Uh, you know, recently, you know, and, and and Ellie and I sat on a panel together at Pork Fest up in New Hampshire, uh, not quite a year ago. You know, uh, several months ago, you know, somewhere oh, around. We the were weekend. there. Was it June? Yeah. Yeah. We were yeah, there. Yeah, Pork Fest up yeah. in uh, was it yeah. Lake Park? Yeah. 
Cool. Yeah, that, yeah we were there. Uh, well, here was the funny part. We were the tallest people there and the only people wearing suit coats, which I thought was pretty fun. Uh, <laughs> I was, remember that panel because Cal Exit was there as well, right? Yeah, yeah. They had Marcus Ruiz Evans who came in via Zoom. And so I was on that panel. I was sitting up hey. there. So, uh, but, you know, I was on that panel with Elliot. And, you know, we, we have, as I said before, we've had a very active program for international engagement to coordinate with other independence movements and, and the work that uh, Elliot and those guys are doing up in New Hampshire has been phenomenal. They got legislation introduced and they, they had a hearing and that video you saw was a hearing uh, where they were testifying in front of that legislative committee and everyone with the exception of three legislators and a single citizen got up and said, we want a vote on independence. And so we're seeing it, you know, so whether it's, you know, Texas and, and New Hampshire and the Cal Exit people, or even, you know, you go back to some of the retro guys like uh, the Alaskan Independence Party and Lynette Clark or Dr. Thomas Naylor and the Second Vermont Republic, uh, we're seeing more and more interest on the part of people in states wanting to start independence movements and, uh, uh, and uh, advance that issue politically the right way by putting it to a vote of their people. So uh, on that note, we have a super chat from New Mexico says, please take Southeast New Mexico with you when you leave. <laughs> I can confirm that our governor's policy is that the beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Gio. And then Keith the Hat Guy, who we mentioned earlier, who was in book club, he says, after Texas leaves and Florida leaves, following example, by the way, that's called Flexit, if you didn't know, which I think is a cool name, Flexit. Uh, after Florida leaves, would Texas consider joining Florida in a union? Maybe get LA, Alabama, uh, oh, sorry, get Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi to join one day. I'm Floridian, hashtag flex it. Okay, so question we get all the time, and actually it's it's one that uh, it was, I think, the second part of a question from earlier that I don't know that we got to, but, you know, it's kind of like what, what happens with these other states? We have to understand that the states, you know, there's not, we all leave together, right? That's not how it works. Each state as a sovereign entity, the people of that state have to make that decision and they have to follow their laws to make that decision for themselves. For example, while it's easy for us here, we could have a referendum on the issue. Uh, you know, a state like Nevada would have to uh, repeal a provision in their constitution that mm -hmm. forbids them from withdrawing from the union, right? So, you know, there, there are, so the states have to do this individually, but the question becomes, do we, is there going to be some union on the other side of it? And I would posit that not only is it unnecessary, I think it would be harmful to do that. Mm. If you look at the way that nation states do business around the world right now, uh, they don't net primarily do this through political unions like we see with the United States or the European Union. That's very anachronistic. <clears throat> what they do is they, they, uh, they come together with trade agreements, right, where they set their own tariff schedules and sometimes free trade. Matter of fact, the United States has free trade agreements with 22 separate self-governing countries, right? They have free trade agreements or they have mutual defense compacts or they, they engage in relations with one another in a way that works for them. And so on the other side of this, an independent Texas and, and any of these other states that make the decision to do this could engage in, in the exact same way with 
free trade agreements, free travel agreements, mutual defense packs, but without any of us giving up our sovereignty to a body of bureaucrats in a capital that is not ours. I like that. Yeah. It seems like an invitation to invite the same problems. Uh, it, that's exactly what it is. You know, I yeah. mean, what, what, it's like, okay, well, it didn't work the first time. So let's do it again because it will miraculously work if we do exactly the same thing this time, you know? <laughs> I, I actually, along those lines, I know you didn't want to rewind too much, but I do have kind of a question because I know I'm sure you've studied this. The Hamiltonian view mm. of the founding documents is what has triumphed. Um, how? <laughs> Why? Like, how did we get from Thomas Jefferson and James Madison to where we are based on what's written down? in the U.S. Constitution? Wow. Uh, you know, that that is that is a conversation that would take probably <laughs> a, a very long time. But look, I, I have I have my my views on it. I believe that to a certain extent it was it was conscious. I, I believe that this, the switch from the Articles of Confederation to the U.S. Constitution was a conscious shift to, to consolidate power. Uh, and, and I believe that there were people that were working very hard from the foundation of the U S constitution to continue to consolidate power. Because at the moment that you have people that can in their minds, visualize them being super powerful in charge of a certain entity, uh, they will invariably weaker, weaker men will conspire to do that very thing. That will be their aspiration. And so this, you know, this Hamiltonian view of the United States as a nation was anathema to the founders and the framers. I mean, they they had no idea uh, that 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 would be it. Otherwise, they would have, you know, they would have strangled this baby in its cradle. Um, but that's what they did. And, and Hamilton, through what he did, he understood that mo that monetary policy was going to be a, a key part, the control of the purse. Uh, but it was also, you know, you go on, you have guys like Daniel Webster. Uh, who were big proponents of this and, you know, the judge story. And I mean, there were, there were so many of these people, they were promoting this idea of the states giving up their sovereignty. And of course that all culminated uh, during the, uh, the civil war uh, where you have probably perhaps one of the most unprecedented power grabs by the federal government uh, since it's, since it's founding, right? The, the consolidation of power, by bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. And, and I would even go further and posit that what we saw with the COVID lockdowns and, and everything else was probably the greatest pow governmental power grab since the Civil War. But the, yeah. the point here is, is that people say, well, the Civil War settled this issue, that this is, a, but it hasn't been settled, right? It, it's just been suppressed. Uh, people have, have not talked about it uh, as much, but here we are. We have advanced the conversation. We have shifted the window. And now people are talking about the potential of states becoming independent, self-governing nation states. Uh, and it's a conversation that is long overdue. And I would posit to people this, that it this is the conversation that we have to have now. Because if we don't have this conversation and agree that we can no longer be governed under one umbrella by people have, who have fundamentally different worldviews than one another, then what we're going to look at is what we saw after the collapse of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, and particularly what happened in Yugoslavia. We're going to see balkanization. And so if people want to avoid violence, 
then their best bet is to embrace a political solution that recognizes that Texas should be Texas, California should be California, New York should be New York, and we have no business trying to govern one another. Hmm. Daniel, well, I um, I want to make sure, I, I want to thank you, first of all, for being sticking with us for this long amount of time Lord, and for Lord. taking all these questions. And I want to make sure that uh, we plug before we leave at some point where people can find you and your race for Lieutenant governor. Mm -hmm. And then also where they can find out more information about Texas, about the book, about the movement, the two separate things. Yeah. Okay. So anyone who wants, uh, who has any more questions about Texas, uh, they can head over to the TNM's website that was set up just for this at texitnow.org. Uh, there we have about the hundred most asked questions and the answers. And um, we give an opportunity for people to not only learn more, but get more involved. And of course, you get a copy of the book. Uh, it's available on the TNM's website, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, pretty much anywhere you can get books. Uh, but if people want to connect with the campaign uh, for Lieutenant Governor, uh, understand that it is we're, we're heading we're getting really close to the start of early voting. Uh, early voting is February, starts February 14th. The primary elections on March 1st. And uh, we are running really hard right now. We are the main opposition to the sitting lieutenant governor. And we believe right now that we're going to be able to force him into a runoff. But we need everyone to participate somehow. Uh, and that is, if you live in Texas, we would appreciate your vote. If you'd like to volunteer, you could do that. Or if you would like to donate to help us beat this tw the $25 million man, uh, we would appreciate it. And you can do all of those things at texansformiller.com. I'm going to post this in chat or Texans. We'll put this in the video description too. So I just wanted to yeah. make sure you got the chance to say it on air. Um, I'm so, I'm a so super glad. Chats. We can, oh, okay. There's a couple more. Um, I think you answered this, but it's it gets an old one. But you 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 got close to it. Pirate Tomsky wants to know: Have you spoken to Nigel Farage about Texas or Texas? Oh, oh, oh Nigel. Like we we were trying to get <laughs> Nigel to write the forward for the book. Um, he was he was on the yeah. target list, and we thought we had it nailed down. And then uh, Nigel didn't do it. And Nigel didn't do it because he was afraid of making Trump mad. So it was uh, pretty disappointing. But, you know, look, we we deal with those guys. Nigel went on to do some – he's doing some phenomenal work right now with the Brexit Party, he and Richard Tice. Well, now the Reform Party UK. Uh, but, you know, that work that they did, and we still talk to so many of those Brexiteers over there. Uh, one of the members of our advisory board in the TNM – uh, was one of the regional organizers for UKIP, and he went over to Brexit Party when uh, Nigel and, and Tyson, those guys, set it up. So uh, I don't talk to Nigel, uh, but I do still talk to the folks in those circles. So Cool. I I don't know if there's – I might be missing some, but I don't think I'm missing any Texit-related questions. So, uh, Oddly I enough, I see something in the chat, uh, and I'll throw this out there. Uh, someone says, limit political donations to only – the region the politician is running for. I, I will tell you that has been one of the most controversial things, oddly enough, that that I've talked about in this lieutenant governor's race. Uh, and it's something that the TNM has advocated for for multiple legislative sessions. Uh, you know, the the idea here is, is that campaign funds, uh, the, you know, the campaign funds that are coming in from California and New York and K Street mm -hmm. lobbyists unduly influence Texas elections. And if we don't allow 
campaign contributions from Russia, China, or Mexico, why should we allow them from California, New yes. York, and those other places? So, you know, as it stands right now, we want to make sure that we can get that change legislatively because tons of money is already pouring in from out of state uh, into the coffers of Greg Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. And, you know, we're having to accept out-of-state contributions right now, though very few uh, have come in uh, just to make sure that we can level the playing field. But uh, at the end of the day, what we want to ultimately do is ban the practice altogether. I 100% support this because Thank I know you. so many people who were, when when Beta was running, I had just recently left California. I knew so many people there who were sticking their nose in our election and sending their money and doing phone. So fine. You want to donate your time and call people from the state of California to tell them why they should vote for Beto. Okay. But sending your money and influencing in that way just seems somehow wrong to me. Hey, new, news broke the other day. Gre Greg Abbott is having a fundraising event in Orange County, California. Wow. I mean, he, he's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's circulating all over Twitter and social media. You know, he's having, you know, he, he got found out, but he's going out there to raise money. And it's like, you know, the only people who should have a say in Texas elections are Texans, period. Yeah. I need to think about it more because I am I have a visceral reaction to the government being involved, tracing funds and deciding what counts as support and having an entire apparatus and infrastructure there to monitor who's doing what for campaigns. That that gives me heart palpitations. But I will say if you've got a good constitution and you have the right kind of government, it shouldn't really matter who wins because they shouldn't have that much power in the first place. The only reason that money flows in right now is because there's basically unlimited power in politicians, and that's why people care. Um, so maybe we could – maybe post-Texit we can have a, uh, a state somewhere in the world where being a politician is kind of not really an honorable thing to do, and you don't get any power, and no one wants to do it because it sucks. Hey, Sam Houston said it best. He said that government that governs best is the one that governs least. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, on yeah. that, I, I want to thank you for <laughs> your time today, for your wisdom and the hum sense of humor. And it was really fun talking to you. And I hope that everyone gets a chance to check out your websites. We'll put them in the description. Um, and, yeah, yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much. I, I good luck. Really enjoyed it, and thank you very much. And, and thank you guys so much for for having me. I I can't tell you what uh, what your kind words and encouragement have meant to me. I appreciate it. Well, I will say when this locust picks up and leaves California to settle in Texas, I will uh, I will be all about Texas. So, but you got to um, hurry up before you better hurry up and get here before you need a visa to get in. We're gonna build a wall around you, Carter. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> I would probably like it more if it was harder to get to like that. You had already seceded and there was all like, it'd probably be better, but, um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you again for joining as a reminder to everyone. We have book club. Uh, what is it? A week from crap. Carrie, is it a, a week, week, a week from this Sunday? Yes. Crime and punishment. Crime and punishment. Two different translations, but the same book, crime and punishment. Um, and I guess that's it. Cool. Have a good weekend. Thank you guys. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you all. Thanks. Thanks for spending your time with us today. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. So go check it out. 
And please consider supporting the Unsafe Space team by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. Please download this updated list of contagious individuals. Use the hashtag GetBoosted to receive two complimentary Liberty Pellets. Mass formation psychosis is just a right-wing talking point. Please purge it from memory and resume your programming. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice, Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.